EU Confidential gets started right after this. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Russian missiles have crossed the border into Poland. The Polish authorities have come out and said... It's a Russian-made missile, but of course, it doesn't necessarily mean it was fired by Russia. This explosion was most likely the result of a Ukrainian air defense missile that unfortunately landed in Poland. This week, the war in Ukraine took a new and potentially dangerous turn. On Tuesday, a missile landed in Poland near the Ukrainian border, killing two people. It was the first incident on the soil of an EU and NATO member country since the war began. At the same time, leaders were meeting on the other side of the world for the G20 summit in Bali, where the news overshadowed the gathering, dominating discussion and debate. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's chief Brussels correspondent. This week on EU Confidential, we'll analyse the latest developments in Russia's war in Ukraine and how the news of that attack in Poland was received in Bali. Later in the podcast... We'll hear from Hungarian author Susanna Selenyi about her new book on Hungary's leader, Viktor Orban. When the political language within a community, within a party, for example, or in a country is changing and minority opinions are not acceptable and political rivals are looked at enemies, these are the first warning signs. But first, to the topic that has been dominating international discussion since February, the war in Ukraine. Let me be clear, this is not Ukraine's fault. Russia bears ultimate responsibility as it continues its illegal war against Ukraine. That's Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, speaking after an emergency meeting of NATO ambassadors on Wednesday in Brussels, which was called in the wake of the missile strikes. I'm joined by political's Jan Chinsky uh, to bring us up to speed on where things stand with the story. Jan, what do we know so far about what transpired this week in Poland? Well, there was a uh, a missile hit in eastern Poland, a village about six kilometres from the uh, Ukrainian border, killing two people. The Polish government was very cautious. People were jumping to conclusions that it was a Russian uh, rocket that uh, hit Poland intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, The government uh, was 
quite careful. Uh, for several hours, there was sort of silence as they tried to figure out what happened. And the conclusion now is that it was uh, almost certainly a Ukrainian air defense missile. One, perhaps two. The Russians uh, had launched uh, the largest series of missile attacks on targets across Ukraine, I think in revenge for the, uh, for the retaking of Kherson. Um, and so there's power blackouts and outages across Ukraine. And the Ukrainians were trying to knock down as many of these cruise missiles as possible. And what seems to have happened is that the air defense missile went astray and landed in Poland. These missiles are supposed to have auto-destruct, that they blow themselves up if they've missed their target. So there was just a, a bad series of events that, that, that led to this. Uh, it's clear that the Ukrainians in a sense, had hoped that this would be a Russian missile. And when the first news came out, the Ukrainian government was saying, well, this is a, a sign that we need to get upgraded equipment, yeah. air defenses, uh, perhaps F-15, F-16 fighters from the Americans to defend our airspace. Uh, those calls have muted. Uh, the Ukrainians are still continuing to call for an investigation uh, because they they still haven't fully accepted that it's a, that it was a Ukrainian air defense yeah, missile. Yeah, that's been interesting um, that we've heard this language coming from uh, President Zelensky. And, and what was so interesting, when, when the news broke first, we had this kind of blackout period, if you like, where people were wondering what happened next. And then we, we, we'll hear from Stuart later in the podcast about how things went down in, in Bali, where the G20 summit is happening. I mean, Jan, you know Poland, you're spending a lot of time there. I remember at the beginning of this war, there was a lot of talk, a lot of fear about a spillover effect into Poland, into these bordering countries. I mean, in a way, this encapsulated those deep fears when when this this happened. I mean, two people have lost their lives uh, this week. Yeah, the striking thing with this, and uh, there's an understandable Ukrainian frustration about this, is the rest of the world seems to have sort of internalized that it's entirely normal for a country like Ukraine to be bombarded with uh, rockets, missiles, have people killed in the streets. But a single rocket lands in Poland, EU, NATO territory, and the world stops. It's like, oh, my God, are we heading towards yeah. World War Three? What's going on? So for the Ukrainians, it's dramatically unfair. There's no... You can see that Poland is an entirely different category of country than Ukraine because mm. of its uh, because of its membership in the European Union, especially in NATO. NATO. But I mean, they have legi- legitimate concerns, as this incident really highlighted, that they are right beside this war. It's literally on their doorstep. So, so Poland has been arguing that this could have happened for the last few months. So w- one can understand why there has been that fear uh, in Warsaw. Yeah, um, but the but again, the Polish government was remarkably cautious because the stakes are very, very high. So they wanted to get this one right, and in the end, the call was was correct. So there's no Article Five. There's no sort of call for a broader. Uh, reaction on the part of its uh, NATO allies. Russian propagandists have long been calling for Russia to start hitting roads, bridges, that sort of thing, to stop the flow of arms. Uh, There's a Polish airport in eastern Poland in a city called Rzeszów, which is a huge airport right now where the Americans and other allies are funneling vast amounts of military aid through there and on trucks and trains into, into Ukraine. So the Russians have been, there's been pressure among the sort of nationalist pro-war right in Russia to start hitting these targets. Um, So the Poles are quite fearful that this was going to happen. Hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Jan, thank you very much for that. And we're going to go to Ukraine now where uh, Jamie Detmer, our colleague, uh, has arrived this week and reporting there. Hi, Jamie. Hello. How are you? 
Good, good. How are you? More to the point. I mean, what is the feeling there uh, on the ground in Ukraine? Obviously, it's been a dramatic few days. Not only did we have a, the missiles in Poland, but also a barrage of, of missiles and attacks on Ukraine this week. Well, it was the biggest barrage of attacks targeting the energy infrastructure of the country by Russia since October the 10th, and arguably bigger than October the 10th. There's a slight dispute about the number of missiles. Uh, Some officials are saying 90, others are saying 100. On October the 10th, it was 85. Now, they managed, the good news is, they managed to intercept 70 of these missiles. But many towns were affected. Lviv was where I am now, was without electricity uh, most of today. They've just come on the lights now. They've managed to patch it together again. Uh, Chernobyl, a town uh, quite close to here, was also without electricity. Parts of Kiev. The list goes on. About 15 infrastructure facilities were hit and caused major chaos. One thing a lot of the commentators have missed, of course, is it wasn't just that towns and villages cast into darkness and into the cold... Uh, But also the railway system came to a grinding halt. I was meant to be travelling last night on a train from Poland into Ukraine. We waited for hours. The train didn't arrive. We had no information. In the end, we walked across the the border early this morning at dawn and catch rides into Lviv. So the railway system was totally disrupted, leaving lots of Ukrainians across the country trying to get into the country and out stranded. Yeah, what a picture. I mean, that reality of these strikes hitting infrastructure and the most fundamental parts of life uh, in Ukraine. In terms, Jamie, of the development uh, about the missiles landing in Poland, we've now been hearing from Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, saying really that this was non-intentional and that they now believe it's um, Ukrainian defence system, that that's where this whole issue originated. Um, What's been the response uh, in Ukraine to this? Well, the officials want to be part of the investigation to analyse the remnants of this missile at the moment, it's going to be investigated by the US and the Poles. There's a certain amount of defensiveness about the Ukrainians in their reaction, because I think they're worried that in the end, they'll get blamed. And the point that they're making, even if it was one of their missiles, which was trying to intercept a Russian missile, is ultimately the responsibility for this rests with the Russians, because they were trying to shoot down Russian missiles attacking their energy infrastructure. They're trying to defend themselves. And the Italian foreign minister also made that point, that in the end, the ultimate blame, whoever missile it was, rests with the Russians. They're the ones who launched a war, an unprovoked war on Ukraine. That's the position of the Ukrainian officials. But they do want to be part of this investigation. Mm, And Stoltenberg made that point too, you know, was careful to say that, that this is ultimately lies at at the door of Russia. Jamie, thanks so much. We will be speaking to you over the next few weeks. Uh, Stay safe out there. Thanks very much. Pleasure being on. Thanks. As I mentioned, I spoke to Stuart Lau, our EU-China correspondent, earlier this week, who's been covering the G20 summit in Bali. Hi there, Stuart. Hello, Suzanne. So, look, this news broke in the early hours of Wednesday morning in Indonesia while leaders were, were, st- were sleeping. I mean, what has been the reaction there? So the reaction was obviously, well, initially a shock to most of the uh, most of the leaders present here. So um, Rishi Sunak got woken up by his staff at 5 a.m., for example, telling him what's going on. Um, and then he had a phone call with the foreign secretary and the defense secretary, of course, 
And then uh, soon enough, there was a mini NATO meeting, if you like, taking place right here in the tropical resort. Joe Biden, the U.S. president, was convening the meeting. The other NATO uh, heads of state in G20 were also present, except, interestingly, the Turkish president. But otherwise, all the Europeans are there. They were obviously very concerned about the situation. So the line really was about making sure that there would be a thorough investigation by the Polish authorities about who fired the missile, the million-dollar question. And U.S. President Biden was also talking about the trajectory unlikely being from Russia. And that was uh, quite early on during the day, actually. So that gave rise to uh, a lot of speculation about uh, what he meant by that, what preliminary evidence he's got, um, and then, um, but he didn't really elaborate on that, nor did the European leaders. Mm-mm. So that, in a sense, those, those early comments by Biden when we woke up in Europe here calmed nerves. And, and you're referring there to, to Rishi Sunak, obviously the British Prime Minister, his first big meeting at a platform like this, a, a G7 or a G20. So, I mean, as the day went on then, I mean, looking more generally then, I mean, the leaders of the G20 did manage to to sign up to a communique with language on the war in Ukraine. Yeah, they did. And obviously, uh, the Europeans took it as a big victory. Emmanuel Macron, the French president, was giving a press conference just a moment ago. And he also, you know, placed a lot of emphasis on the fact that there could be a communique. Uh, The Indians, for that matter, played a big role here as well, because they will be the G20 host next year. And obviously, they don't want to see a scenario where there will be no communique. And that becomes a sort of um, general practice, if you like. So obviously, they did a lot to try to mediate, uh, to get, you know, not just the Chinese, but actually the Russians um, to say yes to such a communique. So the trick really here is that, you know, according to Western officials, is about making sure that there are enough mentions in the communique about uh, each nation having their own position, for example, um, before they went on to cite um, the UN resolution, which of course condemns uh, Russian war of aggression. So I think, you know, by making sure that there is room for everyone to interpret their own version, their own story, even with this communique in place, I think that was the trick to uh, securing such an outcome. Yeah, I mean, we'd heard in the run-up there had been uh, lots of discussions among officials, among Sherpas as they're as they're known, to try and get this language over the line, because you had these different views uh, and and a lot of countries not wanting to take sides as they see it on the Russia-Ukraine war. One issue or one theme I suppose a lot of our listeners will be interested in is the EU side of things. I was writing last week about the tense relationship between Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission, and Charles Michel, the uh, president of the European Council. We had heard uh, that there was potentially a meeting between Michel and Xi and would von der Leyen be invited to that? In the end, that didn't happen. Um, What were relations like between the two? I mean, I saw one photograph of them with the other leaders and they were sitting miles apart from each other. So um, how did things go for them uh, in Bali? I think I was the culprit for that photo that you were just mentioning. But obviously, you know, it was so funny in a way, you know, looking at the big screen, you know, obviously the cameraman or woman was trying to portray, you know, OK, guys, this is the two EU presidents sitting side by side. But obviously they were sitting like very far apart, especially, you know, the impact was quite funny on a big screen because, you know, that distance sort of got exaggerated a little bit. Um, 
so the two presidents did manage to sit together for an Australia dialogue uh, just today. Um, so it was an EU-Australia thing. So obviously the two of them were present together. But as you were pointing out, um, initially it was the plan for the European Council President Jean-Michel to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with President Xi. Um, that didn't go through. So the EU side, you know, privately they're saying, you know, we uh, obviously, you know, everything is in flux in a situation like this. You know, it's G20, so everyone got a lot of plans, not to mention the fact that there was this, you know, Poland incident in the morning. But obviously, you know, China was also very upset about what Jean Michel was trying to say just a week or so ago in a pre-recorded message that was supposed to be aired in a Shanghai trade expo. He recorded a message, the Chinese listened to it. Obviously, he said something about the Russian war and aggression, and that was not comfortable to Chinese ears, so they decided to pull off the speech. And since then, I think, you know, the EU side started realizing that maybe this meeting in Bali would never happen. Yeah, and of course, there was a a potential meeting between Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, and Xi, that didn't happen either. I mean, that brings us on to a uh, one of the big themes of this G20, and that was the role of China. A big moment for Xi Jinping on the global stage. How did things go from a Chinese perspective? I mean, Stuart, you are a China correspondent. You write about this relationship and China quite a lot. I mean, how did things go down for them? So obviously the highlight was the meeting between uh, the US and Chinese presidents, Biden and Xi. Um, it lasted three and a half hours long. And um, I think what's really striking for a lot of commentators is that this time around, the tone is really much softer than before. Um, the level of contention or the level of, you know, um, contentiousness really um, decreases quite a bit in, in the sense that Biden is talking also about cooperation and all that. Of course, you know, you have the Chinese readouts which focus more on um, the Chinese version of stories, you know, how the Chinese see the issue of Taiwan, for example, warning the Americans not to overstep the red lines and so on. But I think overall there was an intention for both sides to re-establish the ties to not resetting the tone, but at least, you know, to try to bring the relationship back from the brink of collapse or the brink of conflict. Uh, I think that was a very clear message. In terms of Xi Jinping-Europe relations, we talked about Michelle not getting uh, the meeting. On the other hand, Xi Jinping has been very active in uh, reaching out to member states, you know, for one-on-one -on -one bilaterals. So you have Macron, you have Mark Rutte, the Dutch Prime Minister, you have uh, Sanchez, the Spanish Prime Minister, uh, and of course, just a few weeks ago, Olaf Scholz, uh, the German Chancellor, who actually went to Beijing. So uh, at this moment, you know, the feeling is that China is very keen to make sure that the big economies in the bloc uh, would keep a positive relationship with China. And through that, China is hoping to bring, you know, the EU-China relations overall also on a more steady and predictable path. Thanks again for joining us, Stuart. Thanks, Suzanne. Coming up, we'll hear from Susanna Seleni about her new book, Tainted Democracy, Viktor Orban and the Subversion of Hungary. Stay with us. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Susanna Seleny first got to know Viktor Orban in the 1980s as Hungary was transitioning to a democracy and Orban's Fidesz party was emerging as a new political force. But Seleny, who's now at the CEU Democracy Institute in Budapest, quickly became one of his harshest critics. I spoke to her earlier this week about her book, Tainted Democracy, Viktor Orban and the Subversion of Hungary. Thank you very much for joining us, Susanna, on the podcast your book opens with an image of you standing next to Viktor Orban as he delivered a speech in 1989. And you're a founding member of the Fidesz movement and, and you capture that sense of potential and excitement as the Cold War came to a close. And yet you became very disillusioned with Orban eventually, um, a very outspoken critic of, of his leadership. Tell us, though, a bit about your impressions of Orban back then, more than 30 years ago. OK, so first of all, a Fidesz party was established by a number of students who came out from specialized colleges and this gave um, an opportunity for young people in the 80s to think about politics and democracy and exercise political rights within the colleges. So there was an experience of how to do politics and this was a very specific environment and early Fidesz was really a super open and very democratic organization. Uh, Viktor Orban was a decisive person. However, it was a community-led organization for several years. He was uh, very smart and very strategic. He always wanted to be the first to comment on things and give his opinion. So somehow this urging, pressing presence, I think that was all mm. already back then his personal quality, just something that we also see uh, out of him today. But Absolutely. he had a good humor. He was actually a likable person in general. So, I mean, why did you start moving away from Fidesz? Where did the disillusionment set in for you? So Fidesz has started to change when we got into parliament in 1990. This was a very different status comparing to uh, you know a movement the atmosphere within the Fidesz parliamentary faction changed significantly in 1991-1992 it was very humiliating and bullying style it was not good to represent a minority opinion and of course Orban was very strongly manipulating the the opinion of the group 
he was elected as party president in 93. And from that point on, the centralization of resources and decision making was was very tangible. Okay, within Orban himself, that centralization of power. I mean, one of the quotes I, I came across reading the book, um, it's from 2011, and it's language from Orban where it really captures his feelings toward the EU. He says, in 1848, we could not be dictated to by Vienna. And in 1956, we would not be dictated to from Moscow. And now we will not be dictated to from Brussels or from anywhere. And you say that that was a kind of a moment for you where you decided to go back into, into politics for another party. But, you know, where do you um, or how do you explain the beginning of this kind of anti-EU sentiment by Orban? I think something has seriously changed by 2010. Orban oftentimes explained that the world has changed, the West is on a decline. I think the 2008 economic crisis was a very important experience, and he felt that the dominance of the West is over, the new powers are coming up, good life is possible to be organized with other type of leadership than liberal democracy. And he, he made a significant shift in his mindset. He explained it in several speeches to his own people. And in 2010, when he got this landslide victory, he initiated a new foreign policy paradigm in Hungary, which was really against everything was consensual before in the first 20 years uh, after the regime change. And he started this type roping, balancing relationship between Western alliance and some Eastern powers, first uh, with Russia and then very openly with China as well. And so that shift towards authoritarianism that you described there, that gradual shift, what worries you about what you've seen over the last few years in Hungary about these rule of law concerns? I mean, it's a big week here in Brussels in terms of the commission preparing to take a decision on, on funding for Hungary. But what are the main concerns you have or worries you have about Hungarian democracy currently and over the last few years? So Hungarian democracy went through a very radical change since 2010. Already in the first one year when Orbán's party made this landslide victory, the one-party government changed the constitution. They changed several dozens of cardinal laws, which basically structure the constitutional setup of a country, including media law, election law, and a lot of other things which shape the political scene. And all of these changes were favoring Fidesz party and were pushing down any alternative political forces like opposition parties or controlling forces like media or civil society organizations. And by 2014, when Orban declared his state as an illiberal state, Hungary was really far away from what we regard liberal democracy. And the chances to change this party government in a democratic way was already seriously challenged. And the situation ever since is is more difficult. And of course, then we had the migration crisis starting then in the, at the EU level, where we really saw Orban taking this stance against Brussels at the time in terms of migration policy. Do you think the EU has handled Viktor Orban the right way? I mean, has it been tough enough? Did it enable Orban to some extent? Well, I would say the member states, which create the political will of the EU, really mishandled Viktor Orban and his um, maneuvering politics. They 
thought for many years that there is always a basic agreement from Orbán's side that to be in the EU is, is a critical issue for Hungary. And they always were looking for compromise and find some, some solution and just, you know, to make a least trouble for the EU. There was always some problem within the European Union, but I think they deeply underestimated the will of Orbán and how far he is ready to go beyond any kind of red lines. For example, the rule of law issues. I mean, the EU never made a systemic analysis on what is happening and what is the outcome of the changes, how it looks in, in holistically uh, from Hungarian point of view. What is the, the landscape is looking at a certain point in the Hungarian political election. For example, the migration issue. I mean, this was such an incredible campaign. And Fidesz party always found the loopholes where the EU was working not by common legal decisions, by actually some kind of political agreements, you know, the same rules. Uh, he always tried to change the rule of the games in every field uh, where it was not written. I mean, a huge towering figure in EU politics during the de- that decade was, of course, Angela Merkel, the German yes. Chancellor. Do you put some of the blame at her door? I think this whole attitude was was coming uh, very uh, openly from the German Christian Democratic Party. I think there was uh, within the EPP group several yeah. years heavy criticism towards Fidesz. And also there were some Eastern Europeans who were for Fidesz and the balancing party. The biggest party there was the CDU. And until 2018, Basically, no one questioned Fidesz's place uh, in this political party. Yes, Angela Merkel's party was very, very protected for Viktor Orban. Yeah, that's the EPP, the European, uh, the the centre-right political grouping, the European People's Party in the European Parliament you're referring to there and his membership of that. Uh, for many years. Your book really documents the political career of Orban. But what was also very interesting was the implications for the wider community, the wider world. At one point, you write, no society in the world can confidently say it is immune to autocracy. Um, And it struck me, I read recently a, a fantastic book, How Democracies Die, by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, which is a brilliant analysis, really, of, of Trumpism in America. But also this this idea that, you know, democracies don't just die, you know, in one fell swoop, that actually it's a gradual process that can creep up. So, I mean, what do you think about the implications of, of a figure like Orban for the wider wor- world? And what kind of lessons are there for other established democracies that this move towards autocracy can happen? Yeah, I think the first momentum when the political language within a community, within a party, for example, or in a country is changing and minority opinions are not acceptable and rivals, political rivals are looked at enemies. These these are the first warning signs. For example, in Hungary, in Fidesz party, it started very, very early when um, Orban's opinion was uh, was not uh, su- supported someone, that person ha- really had to see a lot of bullying and, and humiliation. But let's say in 2002, when Viktor Orban lost elections after being the prime minister first, he gave a very strong speech in which he said basically that he represents the entire nation. The party is not in opposition because the nation is not in opposition, cannot be in opposition. And he was in opposition. So he basically delegitimized 
the winning political forces. He didn't question the result of the elections, like in many cases in, in, you know, in Brazil and the US, we are seeing this now. But basically, he told his people, even though they are in opposition, they are the majority. They are the legitimate representative. So these are the big issues when you just deny or one party denies the right of another political force to be present, to express opinion and to lead. These are the very, very critical issues. And sometimes it goes through in a very, very subtle way. Yeah. So this demonization of the opposition is one of those warning signs, as you say, which we see particularly in in the United States at the moment. Look, we are sitting here talking about Viktor Orban, and yet he was re-elected with a landslide victory uh, back in April. I mean, why, why do you think that is? It's important to say that it's approximately 30-35% of the voting population is satisfactory according to the current Hungarian laws that one party get the supermajority. So majority of people did not vote it to Viktor Orban, but he doesn't need the majority because our election law is so incredibly distorted and favors uh, Fidesz's party. The the election rules uh, were changed some 20 times in the last uh, 12 years in Hungary. Basically, every before every election, there are some slight modification which uh, puzzle and often destroy opposition strategies. So there are a lot of legal conditions that it's very difficult to beat Viktor Orban's party in Hungary. The other thing is that the government really made a huge, huge vote buying before the elections, six months before the elections, some four, five percent of the Hungarian GDP was redistributed in a very targeted way to some social groups which uh, were supposed to vote for Fidesz. So there was a huge outflowing from the Hungarian budget and the current 20% uh, inflation in Hungary is definitely partly the result of of this overspending. The third thing was the extraordinary campaign machinery and media and campaign machinery which uh, Fidesz party is having by now and this was very important when the war broke out, the Russia's war against Ukraine broke out. That was just a couple of weeks before the Hungarian elections. And everyone thought that uh, it's a big problem for Orban because he was so much a pro-Kremlin in previous years that many people thought that he, he cannot do this. And then they changed a significant part of public opinion, saying that they are on the side of peace and the opposition is a warmonger. Basically, Orban said people have to choose between blood or gas. But this is also part of how illiberalism works. You know, you don't need to put opposition politicians to prison. You just basically have to make their strategies impossible. Susanna, thank you very much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you very much for having me here. We did reach out to Hungary's permanent representation to the EU here in Brussels and put to them Zelenyi's criticisms. We didn't hear back at time of recording. And that's it for this week. I'm off next week, but you'll be in good hands with my colleague Sarah Wheaton in the hosting chair. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us wherever you're listening to our podcast. And you can always send us feedback and ideas by emailing us. The address is podcast at politico.eu. Thanks this week to our producer, Eve Streeter from Whistledown Productions, Ellen Boonen on recording and production, our editor, James Randerson, 
and our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. Thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.